We are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram, and I respond to all messages there, and I would love to hear your thoughts and feedback on how we can really make the show as best for you as possible. But to the show today, and I'm so excited to welcome Andrew Filev to the hot seat today. Now, Andrew is the founder and CEO at Rike, the cloud-based collaboration and project management software that scales across teams in any business. In December 2008, Vista Equity Partners acquired a majority stake in Rike for a deal reportedly valuing the company at 800 million dollars. Before this transaction, Andrew had raised over $45 million in funding from the likes of Rory at Scale and Bain Capital Ventures, just to name a few. As for Andrew, prior to starting Reich, he started his first software development company at the ripe old age of 18 and has been running Reich for the last 13 years alongside advisory roles with both Ditto and Appulate. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to both Jason Lemkin and Rory O'Driscoll for the fantastic question suggestions today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the episode today, you have to check out Go Nim GoNimbly is the world's first revenue operations consultancy for SaaS companies. Revenue operations is a framework that makes revenue the key metric for your entire organization, resulting in more efficient and productive teams, a better customer experience, and maximized revenue. GoNimbly helps companies create an operational roadmap and executes work as an extension of their internal team. Their founder, Jason, is also currently working on a book about how to transform your operations and increase your company's revenue by 26% through RevOps. You can check them out today at GoNimbly.com. And if revenue is one core focus, your customers have to be the other. And Reviews.io is the first and only review platform to offer a truly unified Salesforce customer feedback management experience, enabling your business to save time and money while monitoring and improving customer service and revenue. In addition to Salesforce integration, Reviews.io also announces competitor analysis. This powerful tool gives businesses updated review scores and history for their chosen competitors, allowing them to spot trends in customer sentiment and take swift action. Collecting reviews for your business with Reviews.io, a Google licensed review partner, improves online visibility, click-through rates, and conversion by introducing star ratings across paid and organic Google search results. And even better, Reviews.io integrates with 30 online platforms. For your free product demo, sign up now at Reviews.io or search Reviews.io in the Salesforce app exchange and listeners get a free 30-day trial by simply mentioning the podcast when they sign up. And last but not least, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO of Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments, and subscription management platform. Fusebill ignites growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine. Hi, Harry. My advice for this week is to choose your investors wisely. Many new entrepreneurs do not realize that your investors will generally be with you for seven to 10 plus years, especially in SaaS. Ask yourself, do I want to work with this person for the next decade? Can they actually help my business? Take the time to do your research before signing that term sheet and get get to know your new partner, as there's a human factor that most entrepreneurs do not even consider. Wow, I mean, I could not agree with you more there, Tyler. And picking the right investors can really help you grow your business. And you can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, that's quite enough of me. And so now I'm very excited to hand over to Andrew Filev, founder and CEO at Reich. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. 
Andrew, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. I heard so many great things from Rory at scale, but thank you so much for joining me today, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I would though love to kick off today with a little bit about you. So tell me, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and really come to found Reich? What was that aha moment? So I started my first company when I was 17 years old, and it was professional services business. So that time, I already knew how to code and basically started the business that leveraged that, right? So it was growing pretty fast we were successful and became to some degree victims of that success we had a pretty big team i was personally responsible for managing 20 concurrent projects on the delivery side i was responsible for managing digital marketing recruiting and so coordinating all those efforts was not an easy affair and i found myself spending less and less time with technology and more and more time with just pure administrative coordination work and at some point i was ready to you know, enough is enough. And I had lots of fun memories and good things from back then. Like one of my favorite ones is with digital work, you assume that it happens at the speed of light. The information travels at the speed of light. And quite often it travels at the speed of Monday morning meetings, right? And so I desperately wanted to correct it for myself and my organization. But I also felt that this was a great opportunity for the market. And it was luckily as a professional services firm, we actually were pretty early in developing sort of web applications. It was before they even were called SaaS. The term that was thrown most popularly back then, there were two terms. One was Web 2.0 and another one was Ajax, believe it or not. And so we were experts in the technology and then I saw great need and I'm like, hey, let's go. Let's build something that's very collaborative, that helps managers like me all over the world get visibility to what's happening in their business. So you could sleep sound and, and run the business well and that was the background and inspiration I love it I do and I expected to go off schedule but probably not go off schedule as early as this but I'm too interested as you know I speak to a ton of investors and whenever I say professional services Andrew if they seem to run for the hills is it fair of them to run for the hills or should there be maybe nuance to how they think about professional services today well uh, that particular business was great but definitely not a venture of fact material and their investors are correct to say that most of the professional services businesses are kind of linear, right, and heavily depend on human labor, if you will, right? If you want to scale the business, you just need to hire more people. And so from that perspective, you're absolutely correct. It's not a typical tech venture profile. That said, there are some very interesting businesses, especially when they start overlapping with new technologies. For example, there was, I forgot the company name, but there was a pretty big funding over AI, enterprise AI oriented company they're usually whenever you got this sort of a transformational technologies truly transformational that, that touch big markets oftentimes there is one or two top tier consultant firms centered around that technology that might be venture funded either through core growth potential in professional services or quite often they co-develop some IP and, and in general if there's this big of a wave coming and if it will overtake the whole enterprise world in, you know, three, four, five years, that's an amazing revenue opportunity. And so uh, I do think uh, once in a while there are uh, interesting professional services, venture fundable businesses. I, I do want to start there, Andrew, on an element that a lot of SaaS founders talk to me about, and it's SMB enterprise. Where should I start and where should I move to 
and from. I have Jason Van Der Boom at Active Campaign on the show, and he said SMB First Works. Can I ask, would you agree with the SMB First Works model? And how do you think about your experience and that really coming into play here? So uh, I generally believe that there is no silver bullet, right? So it's kind of what works for you and what works for the market. In our case, what we started with was, I would say, teams. And there's a slight difference. So there are products that are pure SMB, and then there are products that are start as a small team, but horizontally can span across companies that are large and small. The example of the latter would be Box, for example, or Ripe, for that sake, or Zendesk, or even Ring Central, where you, you start with smaller organizations, but you can easily grow into larger ones. And from that perspective, I do think that there's a new uh, sort of a proven formula for lend and expand, where you figure out your product market fit, you ruthlessly test it at scale with small businesses, and so it's all incremental investments, incremental risks, so that gets your product very far. And what, what it also does is when you start bottom-ups with grassroots adoption, you're very much focused on UX and making sure your product is easy to use, easy to adopt, which ultimately helps when you come to the enterprise, because when, you know, to today's day, day and age, a lot of it is sourced through the departments rather than top-down, and customers now start to understand the value of usability because no, nobody wants a shelfware. People want their problems solved. So I do believe that moving up market step by step is definitely kind of a working model for, for, for a lot of SaaS businesses. I like that step by step approach. I do have to ask, though, in terms of timing, when do you think founders should open their mindset in terms of being willing to make that first step, the second step? Are there stages when kind of they should start focusing on the upmarket motion? So in our case, we're pretty scientific. We would like to do two tests. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Before we had our first sales wrap, we already had 3,000 customers. Uh, and when we decided to build a sales function, instead of saying, hey, let's raise venture funding, hire 10 enterprise sales reps, we promoted two of our customer success reps to start doing sales in a fairly transactional way. And we actually measured the uplift and we did the full economics model. It was a quick test. It only took us two, three months, but we had a bulletproof model that economics work. And so we were confident we could invest in it. That was uh, kind of our first step towards building the engine. And then uh, gradually through the years, we continued to push ourselves and invest into bootstrapping us higher and higher in that hierarchy. And so we, we try to be a little bit ahead where you need to build that sales muscle, you need to build that marketing muscle. But we also try to go with the time. So for example, if, if our deal sizes are kind of six figures, right? You want to hire a sales rep that can potentially sell seven figures, but but you shouldn't rely on that as a, as a main selling motion. So apply this similar thinking all the way from very small deals, but on your journey, like gradually build that capacity, but don't overextend yourself was, was our model. I am super interested. You said there about making the economics work with regards to the start of that upmarket motion. What are the economics in this case in your mindset? Was it the simple cat to LTV and then thinking about sales rep payback period? What was the economics that is important for founders to think about when determining how feasible it is? Uh, you're absolutely right that the payback period was crucial. Our first six years of our growth, we were purely bootstrapped. So we, we spent a lot of time on that and we're watching it very carefully because we didn't want to run out of money. There was no investor 
group to bank us in case that happened. And that built very strong DNA through all these years up until today when we were venture funded, had pretty big rounds. We still run it very, very efficiently. So the, uh, the payback is important. Their capital TV uh, is also important, gives you longer term view. But in, in our specific case, we, we were actually looking even deeper. So we already had e-commerce engine working. And for us, it wasn't just that, hey, sales should be profitable. It was sales should be more profitable than e-commerce. So if we add the sales cost and if we add the sales uplift to the top line, the difference should be net positive. So that was the first calculation that we did when we added their, the sales function. And, and later in the journey, we did philosophically similar calculations when we added different tiers of sales organization. So we started with very transactional sales team and then we gradually added mid-market and enterprise. And so every time we do that, we try to understand both that this team is economically reasonable and efficient by itself, but that it's also, we, we like to compare their efficiency across different channels of different teams to make sure that if you peel down the onion, the machinery is working well across the board, not just in small island. No, I totally get you. So, I mean, we spoke about the economics there in terms of the theory, and I love the element that you said there a couple of times about the testing before really spending big. If we dig a little deeper on the testing, when approaching kind of upmarket motions, how do you think one can test in maybe a leaner way the feasibility of moving up market with enterprise sales and marketing before investing so heavily? Are there ways to test the feasibility tangibly? So for us, the model we picked was land and expand. So we always had, our expansions were always ahead of our new sales. And that provides you the confidence that you can absolutely kill it in the market. You have the best product, you have the best service. So some of our customers grew with us and that gave us the confidence that we can serve that market and we can aggressively go after the new business of our similar type. So so when we started hunting for the businesses like that, we already had a pretty strong customer base, a very loyal customer base that made us confident that we can do that. So I say two, there are a couple of things that are important. One, you, you want to absolutely make sure there's a product market fit, right? And as a, as a founder, you always buy it. So you want, want to make sure that the customers see it, not just that you believe it's there. Like money is there is a good way to, to prove that if they're ready to pay, if they're ready to deploy, if they're getting that value, if you're able to retain and expand them, that's a good sign. The other piece of it is services, right? You it's that that is very different. SMB and enterprise have very different expectations on the level of service that you will provide to make them successful. People make sort of career making or breaking decisions by betting on you and you want to absolutely make sure you support them and provide them incredible level of service and kind of make them successful. So that commitment to service was very important for us. And last but not least, there's well known areas of the product that you need to proactively invest. This is not reactive. This has to be proactive. Like you, you have to be on top of security. You have to be on top of manageability and scaling the account. Because again, last last thing you want to do is let a customer down. So when, when it comes to technological platform, we were ahead. We were always saying, okay, what's the next frontier? We want to be ready. And then in terms of services, we always wanted to be in lockstep. Here's where we are. We want to provide the best service for the customers. 
first. And then in terms of attacking new business, I'd say we were a little bit behind in the sense that first we kind of organically grew into markets and then we doubled down on that with extra sales and marketing dollars. Can I ask, do you wish that you had raised venture funding earlier and attacked the market maybe sooner than you did? I don't think so. For some people, it looks like a long journey. I've been doing this for the decade. I'm absolutely happy with every year of the journey. Of course, not, you know, nothing is always up and to the right. There's sometimes hiccups on the way, but I think the timing worked well. There's certain dynamics in the market that you can only control so far when you're a small business, right? It's very hard to boil the ocean. So I feel if some companies, they're a little bit ahead of the market when they try to force the market to work, our market is huge. Like we could be adopted by millions of businesses. So you can't just take it over with dollars. There's kind of a natural progression and maturity curve in the market. So I feel generally it worked well for us. It also built the right DNA in the company because we bootstrapped for six years of our life. We always put customers first. We I like to say internally that our customers are our best investors. So that meticulous focus on customers helped. Their product market fit follows the same track. Like we couldn't mask the performance of our product or our marketing by dollars and say, hey, you know what? I've got the runway. A couple more quarters will get there, right? Like every quarter was do or die and you had to deliver the value to the customers and you had to do it in sort of economically responsible way. So I feel it built a lot of good culture, built their camaraderie that now is very helpful. And once you have that going, then investment becomes just an incremental fuel into the fire and you can control it, right? If you want to go faster, you put more. And then if you if you say, hey, I'm happy and that's kind of the natural paces which we're growing, you can pull that back a little bit. So that allowed us to be, if you will, in, in control of our destiny. No, I totally get it. And using venture as kind of this lever, not a crutch is very rare for me to see. I do want to ask it because we spoke about those three things that you need to really feel comfortable moving up market. When you do and you really want to hire those first reps, you said about the 3,000 existing customers you have when you hired your first reps. Can I ask, what kind of experience for you personally do you like to see in the first enterprise reps? What do you advise founders that they should look for? Mm-hmm. And I'll add a little caveat. So, so our first reps were not enterprise, right? So, so we we, uh, we looked at it as layer key. We had e-commerce and then we had transactional and then we added mid-market and then we added enterprise. So if you're speaking about enterprise specifically, it's a little bit different than transactional. Uh, your first reps, you need a combination of great sales execution and tenacity, which generally makes strong sales reps. But at the same time, if it's your first enterprise rep, you want them still to be fairly creative and you absolutely want to make sure that they can do discovery well. When I personally interviewed every sales rep, I often role played with them. And one of the key things that I was watching is can they do discovery? I feel it's very important in enterprise in general. I think it's very important in sales and it was especially important in horizontal product like ours that can be applied to so many different use cases and customer needs. So I feel that ability to do discovery is an art in itself. And then, of course, you need their strong sales execution um, and sales performance to kind of follow through, build the pipe and close it. No, I totally get you. And it's uh, fascinating to hear in terms of discovery being primary. I do want to speak a little bit about you, though, and your role, Andrew, because as you said, kind of been doing this for over a decade. I'm really interested. How does the role of CEO change over time? It's a different 
job for, for me in the fast growing business, it's a different job every two to four years, which is great. It keeps me always kind of on my toes. I'd say at this scale, I have a renowned focus on a couple of things. One is goal setting. So the bigger the organization, the more valuable I found to spend time upfront to very, very clearly define the goals and in a very specific way and align everybody on why those goals are important. And the second component, uh, which goes hand in hand with goal setting, is that alignment. So, so spending progressively more time on making sure that when we decided to go after something, there is a full accountability across everybody who is involved and who is critical to that success. And again, it's usually basically everybody. And so aligning the executives, making sure then that this alignment goes down through the organization. We use our own platform to make sure our strategic initiatives are well planned and making sure that that accountability doesn't stop at executives and go downstream to the managers, individual contributors. So that goal setting and that alignment becomes very important. Then what's always important is just setting the North Star and being their advocate and their leader for the whole team to so everybody understands what that is and everybody's excited to get there and understands why it's so important, not just for their economics, but for them, for their careers and for the world. So I think that, again, setting that North Star and then making sure that the team has a clear path to that and holding people accountable, that becomes more and more part of their job versus tactical components, which were more important when we were SMB, right? Where I had my hands very deep into analytics and marketing and product and technology. So when when you just start the business, you you have to go very deep. But as you grow the business, that goal setting and alignment becomes a big component. Can I ask, in terms of like as you grow the business, I'm interested, especially as you grow the headcount, are there inflection points that you saw, especially with Reich, where there were kind of break points maybe in company and team scaling and ones that you'd advise founders to kind of watch out for as they scale their teams? Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and one other thing that, thank you for reminding me that I almost forgot. As a founder CEO, I, I, I think you have a special role in being the guardian of the culture, right? I feel that this is very important, especially in hyper growth. This is one of the fallacies that some companies get into is, you know, if they grow too fast, they start losing their core DNA. And so we were deliberate in that. I believe we built kind of a self-propelling culture. Part of our culture code is that continuous learning and feedback loops to continue to improve ourselves. And so that was super helpful and that helped us avoid some of the typical breaking points. I'll give you examples of what I mean by that. So we do a periodic employee satisfaction service, right? And we, we go very deep trying to understand if in some teams or some either geographically or functionally, if there's some sort of areas of improvement, right? If their employees are not happy, like what what's going on? And, and the survey is anonymous, but then if we see there's a red spot, we try to follow up, understand what's, what happens. All our managers, we, we run upward feedback survey and all of them think of it as like 360s from their direct reports to understand if they're good managers, are they helping their teams do their career defining work? Does their team believe that they provide adequate support and that they uh, kind of foster that high performance in the team? So we have a lot of feedback loops built into organization that help us not just keep the culture, but in a lot of areas to continue to improve it as we scale. And that helped us to avoid major fallbacks. Now, that said, there were a couple of times which were tough. There was once where due to bad timing, 
having a coincidence. A couple of good people left the company, and, and all for good reasons, right? It's somebody sort of made a career uh, and advancing more for somebody found a better fit. So it, it was all for good reasons, but because it coincided, it created this vacuum, both operationally and in people's hearts. And for me personally, it was very rough because I'm very team-oriented, so I took it too hard. You know, it was a, wasn't easy easy for me. But again, once you build this the right team and once you build the right culture, we're a company of many, if you will, right? And some people stepped up that provided actually excellent opportunity to promote some folks and for some of our teammates to shine and, and show what they could do. So I was happy to see that, again, the team carried us forward and actually we became a stronger org, better org, and we were able to promote some folks. So, so that turned out to work well for everybody. Well, it's a sign of a special team and I love that emotional leadership. It's uh, absolutely, I think, what we need to see more of. I do, though, want to move into my favorite segment of the show, Andrew. So it's a quick fire round. So I say a short statement and essentially you give me your immediate thoughts in about 60 seconds or less per one. Are you ready? Well, let's go. Okay, so no man's land in SaaS pricing. Does it really exist or not? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, what about sales rep productivity? What is good to you? The company needs to have a well-defined playbook so that there's no question on productivity. And that playbook should also expand into onboarding as well where there are early signs of success. So it should be measured. It should be obvious to the sales rep if she's performing or not. And it should be obvious to her manager uh, how well that the team is doing there should be no guesses or art in that. Can I ask, how does payback period vary when considering SMB versus enterprise sales reps? In the enterprise, their sales component is usually heavier. In the SMB marketing component, is heavier. The aggregate payback is up to company's discretion. It depends on retention. If your retention is very healthy, you can go longer, all the way up to two years. In the SMB, retention is usually lower, so it's not a good sign if you go beyond a year, but even in enterprise, there are very good, fast-growing companies that keep it at a year. So for me, that year is a magical mark, especially if you have a lot of annual contracts, which basically allows you to recover the cash and reinvest it. Multi-year deals, are they always fantastic or anything to watch out for? They depend on your product market fit. There are a couple of enterprise companies, which I saw that collapse because they must deter an issue under multi-year deals, and they, they grew fast, and then when the renewals came, they were able to sustain that growth. So as long as you're delivering the value correctly, incentivizing your customer success team to make sure that the customers are growing with you within those contracts, then multi-year deals could be good for the customer and good for the company. How do you feel about channel or partner seller programs, Andrew? I feel that for a lot of SaaS in the early days, it's very easy to get overexcited about those. And again, this is not a, not a rule for everybody, but in my experience, in the early days, they don't deliver on the promises but then as the company grows and matures and builds its own product market fit understands its customers how to sell then channel can become an important multiplier yeah absolutely and then final one and probably my favorite I have to admit what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Reich well finally I don't think there is knowledge in abstract I think a lot of it comes through the experience a lot of their management best practices are common sense but you have to live through them to fully internalize and live and breathe them. So I do not think there's sacred knowledge. There probably is, but I just struggle to define it on the spot. Totally. Listen, Andrew, I heard many great things from Rory before the episode, and it's such a pleasure to have you on. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I hope the listeners enjoyed it.
Such a fantastic guest. And if you'd like to see more from Andrew, you can find him on Twitter at Andrew's Thoughts. Likewise, you must check out Reich. It's at Reich.com. It would also be great to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. However, before we leave you today, you have to check out Go Nimbly. Go Nimbly is the world's first revenue operations consultancy for SaaS companies. Revenue operations is a framework that makes revenue the key metric for your entire organization, resulting in more efficient and productive teams, a better customer experience, and maximized revenue. GoNimbly helps companies create an operational roadmap and executes work as an extension of their internal team. Their founder, Jason, is also currently working on a book about how to transform your operations and increase your company's revenue by 26% through RevOps. You can check them out today at GoNimbly.com. And if revenue is one core focus, your customers have to be the other. And Reviews.io is the first and only review platform to offer a truly unified Salesforce customer feedback management experience, enabling your business to save time and money while monitoring and improving customer service and revenue. In addition to Salesforce integration, Reviews.io also announces competitor analysis. This powerful tool gives businesses updated review scores and history for their chosen competitors, allowing them to spot trends in customer sentiment and take swift action. Collecting reviews for your business with Reviews.io, a Google-licensed review partner, improves online visibility, click-through rates, and conversion by introducing star ratings across paid and organic Google search results. And even better, Reviews.io integrates with 30 online platforms Forms. For your free product demo, sign up now at reviews.io or search reviews.io in the Salesforce app exchange and listeners get a free 30-day trial by simply mentioning the podcast when they sign up. And last but not least, as you know, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO of Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments, and subscription management platform. Fusebill ignites growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine. Hi, Harry. My advice for this week is to choose your investors wisely. Many new entrepreneurs do not realize that your investors will generally be with you for 7 to 10 plus years, especially in SaaS. Ask yourself, do I want to work with this person for the next decade? Can they actually help my business? Take the time to do your research before signing that term sheet and get to know your new partner as there's a human factor that most entrepreneurs do not even consider. Wow. I mean, I could not agree with you more there, Tyler. And picking the right investors can really help you grow your business. And you can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode with Parker Conrad at Rippling next week.